0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the last chapter of the series, Murder in the Family, where I share stories of family members who murdered together. So far, I've detailed cases about a band of murderous brothers serial killer sisters, and a mother-son team. This one is possibly even more bizarre. This is the story of two relatives, both unhinged mentally, who in their paranoia decided they needed to take out almost their entire family. They were cousins, and I guess they're what you'd call kissing cousins. This case was shared with me by listener April in Greensboro, North Carolina, the area where it all unfolded. Thank you, April. This is Chapter 4. Fritz Klenner, and Susie Lynch. In 1980, Susie Newsom Lynch was taken to see Dr. Fred Klenner by her mother Florence. Susie had been looking poorly. She'd just returned from Taiwan, and it hadn't seemed to agree with her. Her mother was concerned about her health, so she made an appointment for Susie to see Dr. Clenner, her uncle. Susie was born into a prominent North Carolina family. Her father, Robert Newsom was the chief industrial engineer at R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. Her mother, Florence Sharp Newsom, was from old money. Susie's Aunt Susan Sharp, who she was named after, was the first woman in the country to become elected head of a state supreme court. Susie called her Aunt Susu. The uncle she had come to see, her mother's brother, was also well-known, if somewhat controversial. Dr. Fred Klenner began his career in the field of neonatology, A graduate of Duke University, he gained his reputation initially when one of his patients, a farmer's wife, gave birth to quadruplets. It was the good doctor who delivered them and then oversaw their care in the first months of their life. The quadruplets thrived, and Dr. Klenner was lauded nationwide for his expertise with high-risk births and fragile infants. It became a point of pride for locals to say they had been delivered by Dr. Klenner. Susie had also been delivered by her uncle. However, his life and career was not without controversy. For one thing, Klenner came from a very strict German Catholic family, and when he met and married Annie Sharp, a Protestant, it became a minor scandal in the family. Dr. Klenner became a proponent of the health properties associated with ascorbic acid, or vitamin C. Starting as early as the 1940s, he began prescribing it as a treatment for a number of his patients' illnesses to multiple sclerosis. Within a few years, he became world-renowned for his treatments. People came from across the country to the town of Reedsville, North Carolina to be seen by Dr. Klenner. However, others considered him to be a quack. His overuse of vitamin C, as well as other natural remedies, and his criticism of traditional medicine caused others in the medical community to denounce him. He was called reckless, irresponsible, and even a fraud. He was compared to snake oil salesmen of old. Klenner was not put off by his detractors. He continued to administer vitamin C shots to almost all of his patients, no matter what the ailment. There were other things that caused people to take umbrage with Dr. Klenner. One was his insistence on using a needle sterilizer, even into the 1980s, when AIDS, a bloodborne disease, was known to be killing people. Instead of using a new unused needle for each patient, Dr. Klenner would continue to recycle them, believing that the needle sterilizer was enough protection against contamination and disease. But worse, perhaps, than that, was the fact that new patients would be astonished to find the doctor provided segregated waiting rooms for his patients. Black and white patients were separated from each other in his office, even into the 1980s. Some simply chalked this up to Dr. Klenner being raised in a different time, but others would call it what it was, blatant racism. However, patients, both black and white, continued to seek out Dr. Clanner for treatment and defended him to the end. Perhaps it was because he came from such a wealthy and respected family, or perhaps it was because his patients claimed to be cured by his treatments. Whatever the reason, Dr. Klenner was highly regarded and ran a thriving medical practice. Susie Lynch had been raised in a moneyed and politically powerful family, and her family says she was a bit of a princess. Maybe even more than a bit. From a very young age, Susie would insist things go her way, or else. Her temper tantrums were legendary. Her mother would report that the only way she could get Susie to calm down sometimes was by throwing ice-cold water on her. Susie's birth in itself was not without drama. She had been born a healthy infant at Annie Penn Memorial Hospital in Reidsville. A few hours after her birth, she was discovered missing from the hospital nursery, a woman whose child had been stillborn, had taken the baby. She was stopped before she left the hospital, carrying Susie. After that, her father kept a vigil by her bedside around the clock to make sure nothing else befell his precious daughter. Her uncle diagnosed her with a slight heart murmur. He advised her family that she not be allowed to cry, as it would exacerbate her condition. As a result, her family, mother, father, and brother Rob, took great pains to make sure Susie never became upset. This very well may have created a monster. She was catered to and pampered by her family from birth and was rarely told she couldn't have or do something. Susie most likely didn't learn to delay gratification like most children would as they matured. Her needs were met instantly and without fail for the first part of her life. Susie was spoiled, but she was also beautiful and brilliant. She was popular with the boys and floated through high school like the queen bee she believed herself to be. As a young girl, she became obsessed with the British royal family, reading and watching everything on the monarchy she could find and covering her bedroom walls with pictures of princes and princesses. Many would say they believed Susie thought that she should be part of that family. That is how highly she regarded herself and her position. Susie was raised in Winston-Salem. After high school, she attended Wake Forest University, a private university in the city. There as well, she became a campus darling, and had many suitors. Susie had the brains and the connections to graduate and begin her own medical or political career, or whatever she might have set her mind to. However, while still in college, she began dating Tom Lynch, a tall and good-looking basketball player, two years her junior. Tom was also from a well-to-do family, and had attended prep schools in Chicago. Susie continued to date Tom while he was still an undergrad, and she began graduate school. Tom was thrilled to bring his new girlfriend home to meet his family, who now lived in Louisville, Kentucky. But right away, there were problems. Susie and his mother Dolores did not like each other from the jump. Dolores thought her son's girlfriend haughty and pretentious and not very polite. Susie, in turn, thought Dolores was a meddling old bat. Dolores could see that her son was getting serious about this girl and urged him not to consider marrying her. When Susie found out about this, the war between her and Tom's mother was on. Tom married Susie Lynch on June 6, 1970. The day of the wedding, the bride and her new mother-in-law had a huge fight. Susie acted like a bridezilla way before that term was ever coined. Dolores Lynch would have done well to let Susie have her way on her wedding day, but who knows how many demands Susie had made on the family before that day. Like her own family says, Susie always behaved like a princess and expected to be catered to so it can only be guessed at how much more demanding she would act when it came to her own wedding. The final straw was when Susie threw a tantrum because her sister-in-law Janie's bridesmaid's dress wasn't up to par. Susie said that the dress was wrinkled, and she blamed Janie and Dolores for trying to ruin her wedding. A shouting match between Susie and Dolores followed. The wedding went off as scheduled, but photos from that day show very strange smiles on the faces of Susie and her in-laws. Tom had graduated from college just before the wedding, and the newlyweds moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where Tom had been accepted into dental school. Susie took a position at a research firm that kept her very busy as well. The animosity Susie felt for her mother-in-law continued. As a result, the couple did not visit Tom's parents except once in the first four years of their marriage, although they lived less than 100 miles apart. After graduating from dental school, Tom joined the Navy Reserve, and the couple moved to South Carolina. There in 1974, their first child, a son they named John, was born. Naturally, Dolores, as a new grandmother, was excited to visit and see her first grandchild. When she arrived, Susie met her at the door and said she was unable to let her in as they were busy. She told her mother-in-law to check into a hotel and then call her to make an appointment to see the baby. Susie would effectively keep Dolores from her grandchild most of his life. Their second son, James, was born in 1976. Dolores didn't see him for the first time until a year after his birth. Susie could definitely hold a grudge for a very long time. Tom, Susie, and the boys then moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Tom had set up his new dental practice. The move was a culture shock to Susie, who had come from a wealthy, elite, and conservative family. Albuquerque was much more laid back, liberal, and not as caught up in social class distinctions as Susie was used to. She soon decided that she hated her new city and had nothing but bad things to say about it and its residents. At the same time, when in the company of her neighbors and her husband's new colleagues, she would brag and boast about her own family, the Sharps, back in North Carolina. She came off as pompous and arrogant and didn't make many friends. Things were not going well at home either. She nagged and complained to Tom about the fact that he was always working, that she was left alone to take care of two very young children, And she also felt they were living below the lifestyle she was accustomed to. Tom enjoyed hunting, fishing, and camping. All this, Susie felt, was just dirty and germ-ridden. She, in contrast, preferred to visit museums and attend the opera, things that Tom didn't enjoy. They began to grow apart. Susie began to lash out at her children as well, abusing them physically. Jim was hospitalized once for injuries he sustained, allegedly, when he was beaten by his mother. He was admitted with facial bruises and a concussion. Susie gave a couple of different explanations for his injuries. She said that his older brother John had knocked over his high chair and Jim had fallen to the floor. She also said that he had been in the top bunk bed and John had pulled him off and he'd landed on the bedroom floor. However, some time before this injury, an elderly neighbor who sometimes babysat for Susie saw marks on John's face and asked him what happened. He told her he fell down, and Susie responded, He didn't fall. I slapped him. You must have slapped him hard, the neighbor said, concerned. I did, Susie said matter-of-factly. I knocked him across the room. The woman later told her husband about this exchange, and they debated whether they should tell Tom, but made the decision not to meddle. In 1979, when the boys were just five and three, Susie got word that her grandfather was very ill. She told Tom she wanted to travel to North Carolina with the boys to spend time with him. Soon after she arrived, she called Tom to tell him that she would not be returning to New Mexico and was filing for divorce. Susie also filed for full custody of the boys. Tom, thousands of miles away, tried to argue for shared custody, but because of the distance between them, the young ages of the boys, and the fact that there was nothing to show that Susie was anything other than a good and loving mother, he soon gave in and granted her sole custody. Tom was only awarded a few weeks in the summer and every other Christmas with his children. He was also ordered to pay child support, alimony, and the full tuition for Susie to attend graduate school for four years. As well, she was to be given half of the equity in their New Mexico home, as well as half the value of some land they had purchased together. For all this, Susie would agree to relinquish any claims to Tom's dental practice. However, soon after they were legally separated— Susie heard that Tom had begun spending time with a young dental assistant who worked in his office, Kathy Anderson. She became furious and vowed that her children would not be allowed to visit their father and witness this shameful behavior. Now back in her element, you would think that Susie would be happy once again. But she was restless and needed something else in her life. Since college, Susie had studied Eastern cultures and had been tutored in the Mandarin language. She believed with the East opening up to more business, someone who could speak the language would have lucrative career opportunities. She found a tutor in Greensboro and made plans to travel to Taiwan to continue studying the language. She decided to apply to schools in Taiwan as an English teacher to immerse herself in the language and culture. She received a reply offering her a position in Taipei and readied herself and the boys for the trip. Neither her parents nor Tom approved of her decision. But since she legally had full custody, she didn't need anyone's permission. So three days after Christmas in 1979, Susie, Jim, and John flew to Taiwan. Susie's Mandarin tutor's family met them at the airport and helped her secure an apartment. Susie at first was excited, but if New Mexico was a culture shock, it's no surprise that she found herself unhappy in her new surroundings. She began complaining to family back home about her living conditions. There were cockroaches in her apartment, the pollution in the city was terrible, and her landlady insisted on keeping the windows open, even in cold weather. Her schedule was hectic and stressful as well. She dropped off Jim and John at daycare each morning, went to her job, and then had to run to make it to her Mandarin lessons after work. She spent two hours in class before picking up the boys and bringing them home to rustle up dinner. She began to grow exhausted and became ill the boys' health as well began to suffer. In the winter, Jim became so ill, he had to be hospitalized, an expense that Susie was not prepared for. As a result, she missed several days of school and fell behind on her studies. By April, she had to quit her classes altogether. Her tourist visa was expiring, and she had trouble getting it extended. She called Aunt Susu, who made a call to Senator Jesse Helms, and the matter was soon settled. However, in June, Susie lost the lease on her apartment when the family needed the space for relatives who were moving to the area. She decided to return home to North Carolina. During a layover in Chicago, her former mother-in-law, Dolores, was able to travel to see her grandsons for a few short hours during the time while they awaited their next flight. She would say it was the only time she remembered Susie happy to see her. It was clear that her time in Taiwan had taken a toll on her. Once home, Florence was shocked by her daughter's condition. She was thin, weak, and sickly. It was at this time that she made an appointment for Susie to see Dr. Klenner. One other consequence of her time out of the country was that Susie became more protective, some would say overprotective, of her boys. It was clear that they had become closer and Susie spent all her free time caring for her sons. She also became very concerned with their health. She was constantly on the lookout for germs or any sign of illness in her boys. Neighbors remember her as being the only parent to wait for the school bus with her children every morning and meet the bus when it brought them home in the afternoons. Of course, now in most of the U.S., that is normal, but it wasn't so common in that time and place. Tom began to want more time with his sons now that they were back in the States, but Susie fought that hard. Not only was she still angry at Tom about beginning to see another woman so soon after the separation, but she was now also paranoid that Tom would try to take away her children. Tom, with child support and alimony payments as well as lawyer's fees, couldn't afford to travel back and forth to North Carolina to spend time with his boys. Susie successfully argued that they were too young to travel unsupervised to New Mexico. Tom was required by a North Carolina judge to pay for airline tickets for his two boys, as well as two round-trip tickets for Susie to travel with them, return home, and then fly out again to pick them up from Tom's. As a result, two years passed before Tom was able to see his children. Susie began seeing Dr. Kleiner for treatments and regained her health. Dr. Kleiner diagnosed her with multiple sclerosis and began treating her with B vitamin shots. She felt well enough to begin graduate studies again at Wake Forest University, this time as an anthropology major. But a pattern soon emerged. While Susie at first would become excited about her studies, she soon found fault with her professors and others in her department. Calling her professors idiots, she dropped out of Wake Forest and enrolled instead in the business school at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Discussing Susie's frequent changes in schools and majors, her mother told a friend, I think we have a professional student on our hands. Of course, Tom was responsible for paying all of his ex's graduate studies per the divorce decree. While Susie was receiving treatment from her uncle, Dr. Klenner, she became reacquainted with her cousin, Fritz. Fritz Klenner, seven years younger, had never been very close to his cousin Susie. He was now working with his father in his medical clinic while at the same time attending Duke University Medical School. He accompanied his father on his rounds at Annie Penn Hospital in Reedsville, always in a white doctor's coat. He said he was doing a special blood research study at Duke and would sometimes draw blood samples from his father's patients to use in his research. It was obvious that he adored his father and wanted to emulate him. Patients called him Young Dr. Klenner. However, friends and former classmates of Fritz dubbed him Dr. Crazy. Even his family found him odd. Since he was young, Fritz had been a gun enthusiast, to put it mildly. He collected numerous weapons, went around wearing camouflage, and wore sheathed knives on his belt, and took to the woods to do, well, nobody really knew what. Even Susie, when she was young, thought him strange. As previously mentioned, she had no love for outdoor activities or any of the things her younger cousin was into. She mostly ignored him. As much as Susie was enamored of the British royal family during her youth, Fritz was an admirer of Adolf Hitler. Later, his high school classmates would recall how he was fixated on the dictator, reading and studying about him, collecting Nazi memorabilia, and talking incessantly about Nazi history. Fritz was like his father in a couple of ways. One, he was a big proponent of vitamin therapy. He went about it in a much more extreme way, however— he carried around a doctor's bag wherever he went, chock full of vitamins he called stress pills. He offered them to everyone for every ailment, as well as injections of various sorts. Of course, vitamin C was prescribed by Fritz above everything else, and he would relate his father's stories of miracle cures through its use. Secondly, both Fred Klenner and his son Fritz were rapidly anti-communist. Their belief in the idea that communism was a threat to the American way of life caused them to be paranoid. Both believed that the end of the world was near, and Fritz especially took measures to make sure he was prepared. He was a frequent customer at gun shops, and shop owners would later say that he was collecting an arsenal of weapons. Fritz told others stories of his time in the military. He would say he served as a Green Beret in Vietnam. He told others that he had done dangerous undercover work with the CIA. As far-fetched as his claims were, They were not Fritz's only lies. Fritz had attended the University of Mississippi at Oxford and told his family he'd graduated. He had not. Finally, suspicious, his father asked him to produce his diploma as proof. Fritz told him another whopper about how his enemies in the German department had conspired to keep him from graduating. He thought this excuse would fly, since Fritz, in order to graduate, had only needed to complete a language course. He chose German but never finished the course. His father, however, believed him and asked no more questions about it. Next, Fritz told his family that he'd been accepted into Duke University's medical school, his father's alma mater. He rented an apartment a few blocks from Duke's campus. He spent the week in the city and returned to Reedsville on Friday to help his father in his medical office. He would regale him with tales of his studies and research at the university. However, this was also a lie. He was not attending medical school. Instead, he was spending most of his time at the gun shop, hanging out with the owners and working on BMWs in his friend's garage at night. The shop owner, John Forrest, thought Fritz looked a little young to be a doctor and didn't know how a physician had so much free time, but he dismissed it. When Fritz connected with his cousin, Susie Lynch, she was immediately impressed with his accomplishments. She had always admired doctors. When she'd met Tom... He had been considering attending medical school, but decided to become a dentist instead. She was also pretty gullible. She believed all the tales Cousin Fritz told her about his exploits in the Army and the CIA. Perhaps because she had grown paranoid about losing her children to her ex-husband, she felt comforted when Fritz claimed to be knowledgeable in high-security tactics as well as connected to powerful people. Whatever the case, Fritz and Susie began to spend more time together. At first, this seemed fine. Fritz also took an interest in his two young nephews, Jim and John, spending time with them in activities like camping and hunting. The boys liked hearing about their uncle's dangerous exploits in the military. However, like I mentioned before, most of Fritz's extended family thought him a bit off, and Susie's mother, Florence, wasn't too thrilled to have him hanging around. Susie and the boys were still living at her parents' home, and Fritz was there often, Florence especially didn't like Fritz's late-night visits. Most knew that Fritz had a habit of sleeping well into the morning hours and prowling around late into the night. Now he showed up at the Newsome house to spend time with his cousin into the wee hours. Finally, one day, when Florence woke up in the morning to find Fritz still there, she had a talk with Susie. She didn't think it was appropriate and told her daughter as much. Susie, of course, used to getting her way, pitched a fit. She was not about to let her mother tell her how to live her life, and they had a huge fight. So in January 1983, Susie packed up and moved with her boys into an apartment near the college in Greensboro. She didn't tell her parents where she was for weeks. Florence was beside herself, missing her grandchildren, and tried to find them to no avail. As was her way, Susie used her children as pawns, keeping her mother away from her grandchildren as a punishment, just as she'd done with her mother-in-law. At this time, Susie became estranged from other family members as well, including her grandmother, who she'd always been close to. She did take the boys to see her beloved Aunt Susu, but when she also began trying to talk some sense into Susie, warning her away from Fritz, she rejected her as well. Susie cut herself off from her family with good reason, it seems. Fritz began spending a lot of his time at Susie's apartment, and with her boys, and even overnight. Susie and Fritz, first cousins, had begun having a romantic relationship. Fritz began sleeping with his cousin Susie, but unknown to her, he was also carrying on affairs with at least two other women. Fritz had married a woman named Ruth in 1978. She also believed he was a medical student at Duke. When she later found out that not only was he not enrolled in medical school, but was also having an affair, she filed for divorce. Fritz had a pattern of beginning relationships with women several years his senior. Most of these women also had teenage or preteen sons. Fritz, it seemed, needed to play the hero. He would soon charm the women and her children and work to impress them with his made-up accomplishments as a soldier, undercover agent, and doctor. He'd take the boys camping and teach them to handle weapons. The women were impressed at first, but soon they'd begin to grow tired of his insistence they'd follow his regimen of vitamin supplements and injections, his obsession with germs, and his apocalyptic beliefs. They would also begin to doubt his tall tales and see through them to the insecurities that created this braggadocio. One of these women also recounted how Fritz's beliefs became increasingly paranoid, and he finally tried to talk her into a suicide pact. At that point, she decided to end the relationship. One by one, the multiple women that Fritz was having relationships with broke things off. At the end, the only one left was Susie Lynch. After lots of legal wrangling, Tom was getting his first summer visitation with his boys. Early in June 1983, a few weeks before the boys were scheduled to arrive in Albuquerque, Tom Lynch and Kathy Anderson were married. They were excited to welcome the boys home, and spend their time together as a family. When they arrived, Tom was appalled at the condition of his children. They were thin, pale, and sickly-looking. It appeared that their teeth hadn't been brushed in months. They came with large bags filled with vitamin tablets and medications that they insisted they had to take. If they didn't, they said, their mother would be very angry. Tom threw most of them in the garbage and assured his boys that Susie would never know. Tom and the boys had a wonderful summer together, At first, they were shy and seemed afraid to say the wrong thing. Tom believed that they had been given a long list from their mother of things they were not allowed to tell him. After a bit, they loosened up and relaxed and began to enjoy their stay. They were also able to visit their grandmother, Dolores, who had not seen them in years and had not even been able to talk to them on the phone after Susie began forbidding that as well. They spent a week visiting their grandmother and the whole family was thrilled to have the children back in their lives. The boys also began to talk about their Uncle Fritz. Tom had not heard much about him and didn't know what was going on back in Greensboro. They told their father that Fritz was now living with them, and he took them camping and to gun shows. They liked their Uncle Fritz. Tom was concerned, but didn't want to make the boys feel they had done anything wrong, so he didn't comment. One thing the boys probably didn't tell their father was that their Uncle Fritz began requiring them to call him Papa. Back in North Carolina, Fritz continued to spin his tall tales, but now he was telling them about Tom Lynch. Remember, Fritz told everyone he had been an undercover agent and still claimed to have information shared with him by his pals in the Bureau. He told Susie and others that Tom Lynch had moved to New Mexico because he was involved with running drugs over the border from Mexico into the U.S. He made Susie privy to all kinds of classified information on her ex-husband. Susie, ever gullible, believed her lover and became even more paranoid as time went on. While Fritz was seeing Susie and another woman simultaneously, the other woman became suspicious and asked him why he spent so much time with his cousin. Fritz told her that he had to take care of Susie and the boys because her family, although wealthy, were selfish. They had thrown Susie and the boys out of their home, and they would not help her. He also told her that he did not like the boys visiting their father, because he had information that Tom had used his children in the past as a decoy while he smuggled drugs into the country. While most of the people who heard these stories dismissed them as fantasy or sour grapes against Susie's ex, Susie herself seemed to believe everything she was told. Or perhaps she wanted to believe it, to have something else to hold against Tom and another reason to fight for full custody. Fritz continued to work on Susie to turn her against Tom, He told her that Tom was definitely planning to kidnap the boys, possibly to take them to Mexico where she would never see them again. As a result, Susie began limiting even phone calls between the boys and Tom. When she did allow them to talk to him, Fritz recorded their phone conversations. Gifts, cards, and letters that Tom or his family sent to the boys were thrown in the trash unopened. Dolores knew the boys loved her cookies and brownies and would send packages to them. Susie threw them away telling her sons they could not eat them because they might be poisoned. Susie bought a chow dog for protection. Chows are loyal pets and fiercely protective of their owners. It's probably true that Susie also picked this breed because it originated in China, and Susie had been long fascinated by that country. Later, she bought a second chow to be a companion to the first. She named them Qi Xiang or Little Bear, and Mai Ling. They were nicknamed Chowi and Maisie. Besides John Forrest, the gun shop owner, Fritz had another friend, Doug Birch, who was also a gun collector. Doug had known Fritz for years, but saw that his behavior was becoming more bizarre and began to avoid him. He was especially taken aback when Fritz became fascinated by explosives and also began to play with cyanide. He shared with Birch that he had made cyanide bullets. Birch thought this was going too far, especially for a doctor who took an oath to do no harm. Fritz also had a laundry list of people and things he hated—communists, certain minorities, and Birch thought women as well. Fritz definitely hated his mother's family, the Sharps, because he thought they looked down on his side of the family and had never accepted his father. To Fritz, his father was everything, and anyone who had anything bad to say about Fred Klenner became Fritz's enemy. Suspicions kept mounting about Fritz Klenner's claims, so Birch and Forrest decided to do some checking on him. When they did— They discovered that their friend had never been enrolled at Duke University and that he had no medical license of any kind. Birch then went to the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations to report him as a fraud. When they declined to take any action, he then called Fritz's mother. She listened to him but didn't seem to take the information seriously. But before their divorce, Ruth Klenner, Fritz's wife, found out about his fake medical credentials and told Fritz's father. At first, Fritz threatened to commit suicide if she told him, but believing he needed mental help, she didn't let him stop her. She urged Dr. Klenner to get help for his son. In response, Dr. Klenner simply told Ruth that it was not her problem, it was the family's, and she shouldn't get involved. What Dr. Klenner said to Fritz is unknown, but seeing as he had bailed him out of every other problem in his life, I'd imagine he found some way to reassure his son and sweep it under the rug. Fritz would later tell Ruth that he was relieved everything was out in the open, and anyway, he was applying to another medical school soon. Instead, he enrolled in a two-year dental laboratory training course. Perhaps this was a compromise he made with his father. But after only completing half of the requirements, he quit. He continued to walk around wearing his doctor's coat with a stethoscope around his neck and dispense vitamin pills. Family and friends still believed he was completing a medical internship. In the spring of 1984, Dr. Fred Klenner's health began to decline from a long-term heart condition. While he was hospitalized, Fritz continued to see his patients and provide treatment. On May 20th, Dr. Klenner died at the age of 76. At his father's funeral, his patients asked Fritz when the clinic would reopen. He told them he was scheduled to take the national boards that week, but his test was postponed due to his father's death. When Doug Birch heard about Fred Clenner's death, he said that people better watch out, and predicted that Fritz would surely blow as a result of losing his father, his hero. His daddy was the only thing keeping him in this world, Birch said. After his father's death, Fritz reopened the clinic and began treating his father's patients on his own. But his aunt, Judge Susie Sharp, began having doubts about her nephew. She personally knew the president of Duke University and asked him to check into Fritz's record. He reported back that Fritz had never been enrolled at Duke. Sharp then contacted her sister, Annie Hill, Fritz's mother, as well as the family's lawyer. Soon after, the clinic was closed for good. Many of Dr. Klenner's former patients never knew that young Dr. Klenner wasn't a doctor at all, until later when his name would be widely reported in the news. By late 1983, Fritz and Susie had all the time in the world to spend together. Susie considered him her soulmate and her protector, and Fritz stopped sleeping with other women. He now had one woman who believed in him and put him on a pedestal the way he'd always craved. In July 1984, Tom was enjoying his second year of summer visitation with his sons, They had already spent time touring the Grand Canyon and at a dude ranch in Colorado. They had just returned from a fabulous time at the ranch and were planning to visit their grandmother, Dolores, the following weekend in Kentucky. But before that happened, Tom received terrible news. Police in Prospect, Kentucky reported a double murder. Tom's mother, Dolores, and his sister, Janie, had been gunned down at Dolores' home on Covered Bridge Road. On Sunday, July 22nd, Dolores Lynch had just returned from church, parking her car in the driveway. As she exited the car and walked towards the house, she was shot in the back with a high-powered weapon and fell dead in the driveway. It's likely she never saw it was coming and that her death was instant. Janie Lynch, age 39, was not so lucky. She had been inside the house wearing shorts and a tank top, barefoot and with her hair in curlers when she must have heard the shots and walked out to the back gate to investigate. Police then suspect she was seen by the assailant, at which point she turned and ran through the backyard, trying to reach the back door. Before she could reach the door, she was shot in the back and wounded. A blood trail would point to the following details. Janie continued through the back door, where a phone was located on the wall in the kitchen. She tried to grab the phone, but must have seen that the gunman was too close so she dropped it and continued running into the house. She ran from the den into a hallway where she tried and failed to set off a panic alarm. She next ran into her mother's bedroom, around the bed and back out through the front doors and into a sunroom. Now she was trapped and in a last-ditch attempt to save her life, she crouched on the floor. She was then shot in the neck and this wound killed her instantly. The murder would not be reported until the following Tuesday when a friend stopped by and discovered Dolores's body lying in the driveway in front of her car. Tom was devastated at the news. His father had just died the previous winter, and the murder of his mother and sister now left him completely alone. He called Susie to tell her the news and asked if the boys could stay longer, as he was grieving and didn't want to say goodbye to them just yet. She refused. As the only heir to a $2.5 million fortune... Tom was investigated thoroughly after the murders, and even offered to take a polygraph test. Investigators found nothing that would point to him as a suspect. No debts, no drugs, no criminal associations, or anything illegal in his past. Ballistics tests determined that the women had been killed with a high-powered assault rifle. No empty shells had been left behind. The killer had been sure to pick them up before fleeing. Investigators also determined that the scene had been staged to look like a robbery. Some jewelry boxes had been dumped and purses rifled through, but there were several items of value in plain view, and nothing seemed to be missing. It looked like some type of professional hit, but for what reason, detectives could not fathom. As the weeks turned into months, several leads were investigated, but they were no closer to determining who had murdered Dolores and Janie Lynch. After the tragic death of his mother and sister, Tom received a condolence card and note from his ex-mother-in-law, Florence Newsom. Tom sent her a reply, thanking her for her letter. He also wrote of his frustration about the custody situation and expressed his wish to have more frequent visits with his sons. He only wanted the opportunity to have a relationship that any father should have with his children, he explained. Florence, who'd also had her difficulties with Susie, wrote back, We agree it is very important that the boys have a strong and good relation with their father. We hope you and Susie can have good communication so the boys will not play one parent against the other. With this, the door was open for Tom and the Newsoms, his children's remaining grandparents, to rebuild the relationship. They were able to share the concerns they both had that the children received the care they needed and deserved. The three of them just wanted what was best for the children that they all loved. To ensure this goal was met, They decided over the next few months that Florence and Bob would testify in court at the upcoming child custody hearing on Tom's behalf. They would ask the judge to consider the request that Susie give more visitation rights to the boy's father, as well as more frequent access through phone calls and letters. Susie was furious. She sincerely believed what Fritz had been telling her, that Tom was involved with the mob. She explained that was why Tom's mother and sister had been taken out in a gangland hit. She believed Fritz because, as she told her family, Fritz was in the CIA. The custody hearing was scheduled for May 26, 1985. On May 19th, no one had heard from Bob and Florence Newsom, who had been visiting Hattie Newsom, Bob's 85 year old mother, in Winston Salem. They had not arrived home that evening after their weekend visit, as expected. So Rob Newsom, Bob and Florence's son, called his grandmother Hattie's home. There was no answer. By 10 p.m., they could wait no longer. A neighbor of Hattie's was called, who was also the family doctor. He agreed to go to her house to check on her and see if Bob and Florence had been delayed. As he walked up to the house, he saw Bob and Florence's car, as well as Hattie's, parked in the driveway. The glass in the back door behind the garage that led to an enclosed breezeway had been shattered. The door to the living room on the left side of the breezeway was open. Without entering, he peeked inside and could hear the television was on. He first saw Hattie Newsom lying on the couch on the far side of the living room. Then he saw the body of Florence lying on the floor on her right side. There was blood on the floor. He backed out and went to a neighbor's and told them to call 911. The scene told the tale. They had been sitting in the living room watching television when the gunman had entered the home. Most of the shots had been fired from the breezeway door. Hattie Newsom had been shot three times. One grazed the side of her head, a second hit her in the right side, and the fatal shot entered her left temple. She was lying facing the wall and had perhaps been sitting when the bullets began to fly, the force turning her body around where she fell on her side as if sleeping. Bob had been sitting in an easy chair across from the television. A bullet had passed through the chair and missed him. He must have jumped up, and ran through the living room archway into a small foyer behind the living room. There, he was shot three times in the abdomen. One bullet had traveled to his heart and was the fatal wound. He'd also been shot at close range in the forearm and once in the head. He lay on his side next to the staircase. Florence had been sitting in a green recliner closest to the door. She had been shot in the chest and the head. But Florence's murder was the most brutal, and it was considered an overkill. The shot to her chest pierced her lungs, liver, and heart, and would have been fatal. Still, she had three deep stab wounds to her back, one severing her aorta, a shallow stab wound to her shoulder, and two to the right side of her neck. Finally, and most brutally, her throat had been slit. Her wedding band was bent on her finger, and the finger itself was cut, as if someone had tried to remove the ring. Her diamond engagement ring was missing. Drawers upstairs in Hattie's room had been overturned. Bob's briefcase was found opened and emptied of its contents. Again, valuables had been left behind. On the floor of Hattie's bedroom, a valuable gold bracelet was found, and $500 cash had been left out in the open in a glass dish, but was not taken. Rob Newsom arrived after being told of the murders of his parents and grandmother. He was dazed and tried to answer the investigator's questions as best he could. Almost as an afterthought, he mentioned that his sister Susie's ex-mother and sister-in-law had been murdered the previous year in Kentucky. The next morning when Susie was told about the murder of her mother and father, her friends recalled that she didn't cry, didn't react much at all. Well, there's nothing left, is there? Susie remarked at hearing the news. No one was quite sure what she meant. She seemed most concerned that one of her dogs had gone missing earlier that day, and she was eager to continue looking for him. She hung up quickly, saying that she didn't need anyone to come over. Fritz was there, but he was asleep, and she didn't want to wake him. Tom Lynch got the news from his lawyer in Reedsville. He then called Rob Newsom to get more information. Susie didn't want to talk to him. Tom knew it was too much of a coincidence that his mother and sister had been murdered, two people that Susie had hated for years, and now on the eve of her parents' testimony in his favor in the child custody case, they were murdered as well. He called Detective Ellen Gentry, who was working the case for the Winston-Salem Police Department. The Newsoms were prominent citizens, and the case was being prioritized as they knew the media and the community would soon be clamoring for answers. Gentry talked to Rob Newsom and took a statement. He then called Susie to interview her, but she said she was busy. He thought that was odd that she wouldn't prioritize her parents' murder investigation over anything else that might be going on in her life at the moment. She made an appointment with him for the following day at 10 a.m. He returned the call to Tom Lynch and heard about the murder of his mother and sister just one year earlier. Tom said that he believed the two murders were connected and told him that he should look into Fritz Klenner. He said he was a weird guy and told him that him and his ex-wife had a strange relationship. This was the first the detective had heard of Fritz Klenner. The next day, Gentry spoke to Rob Newsom again. He asked if anyone in the family had an unusual interest in weapons. That's when he heard Fritz Klenner's name for the second time. Rob had also suspected Fritz as a possible suspect and now shared his thoughts with the detective. It was also pointed out that one of the only things that was taken from the house were the contents of Bob Newsom's briefcase. They wondered if there had possibly been information in there pertinent to the upcoming custody hearing. During the investigation, detectives encountered a friend of Fritz Klenner's, Ian Perkins. Perkins was a 21-year-old college student who had looked up to Fritz since he was a boy. They both had a mutual interest in weapons. Klenner had also convinced the younger man that he was in the CIA. Perkins' dream was to work in government intelligence someday so he was very interested when Fritz asked him for his help. Fritz told Perkins he was working on a covert operation to kill foreign drug traffickers. He had an assignment for the young man, sort of an audition. If he completed it successfully, Fritz promised to consider him for future operations. Perkins quickly agreed to help. The following account on the night of May 18th was relayed to detectives by Perkins. Fritz needed him on the weekend of May 17th through the 19th. Perkins was instructed to pick up Fritz and drive him to the Old Town neighborhood of Winston-Salem. There, Perkins dropped him off. He was to meet him at midnight to pick him up after Fritz's mission was complete. The drop-off point was a half a mile from Hattie Newsom's house. Fritz told Perkins that if he was ever questioned about his whereabouts on that weekend, he was to say that they were camping together in the Virginia Mountains. However, when questioned by detectives, Perkins quickly cracked. Detectives told Perkins that Fritz Klenner was not a doctor or a CIA agent, but was a suspect in the Newsom homicide and was also suspected of having killed Tom Lynch's mother and sister. They asked Perkins to help in the investigation, and he agreed to wear a wire and meet with Fritz. They were hoping Fritz, a well-known braggart, would admit to his part in the murders and they would get a confession on tape. Perkins met with Fritz on June 1st and again on June 2nd. Perkins was clearly nervous. He talked too much, sometimes cutting off Fritz altogether or not allowing him to get a word in edgewise. When he did get to speak, Fritz continued to stick to his CIA story and didn't admit to any wrongdoing. On Monday, June 3rd, Perkins again met with Fritz. He sat with Fritz inside his black Chevy Blazer with the bumper sticker that read, Don't get mad, get even. Perkins was even more nervous than before, if that was possible. He was sure Fritz would discover the wire and kill him. Perkins again told Fritz that he was being questioned about the Newsom murders by detectives and asked him if he knew anything about them. Fritz was recorded making a statement that would come close to confessing without actually doing so. I'll write you a paper saying you were not knowingly involved, that you believed you were on a covert mission for the government. I've got things to do, he concluded. I won't see you again. Unmarked police cars were following Fritz's blazer. After leaving Perkins, he drove to Susie's apartment, arriving around 2 p.m. The conversation they'd just recorded between Fritz and Perkins was quickly relayed to the district attorney's office, who authorized them to arrest Perkins on suspicion of murder. Law enforcement officers from the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department The Kentucky State Police, the North Carolina Bureau of Investigations, and the Greensboro Police Department were all positioned around the apartment building on Friendly Avenue. Detectives watched at a distance, as Fritz and Susie loaded what looked like camping equipment into their car. To their surprise, Fritz and Susie returned to the car, accompanied by Jim and John, who jumped in the back seat. They had assumed the boys were not home at the time, this being a school day. Fritz, behind the steering wheel, headed east on Friendly Avenue. As he approached the intersection, a Greensboro detective pulled in front of the blazer, cutting him off, while other officers approached on foot and waved for him to stop. Instead, Fritz drove up a curb and around the officer's car and continued east. Another police officer, Tommy Dennis, who'd been radioed to the scene as backup for the apprehension of a felony suspect, arrived and approached the blazer from the west. Seeing the suspect vehicle, he flipped on his blue lights and tried to make a U-turn to get behind Fritz's car. At that moment, two unmarked cars also made a U-turn behind Dennis's patrol car. One of them passed Dennis to get to Fritz. Dennis swerved and skidded into the blazer, hitting the driver's side door. Dennis was now about 10 feet away from Fritz. He clearly saw the muzzle of a 9mm submachine gun pointed at him. And then he saw Fritz... "'smiling at him. "'Fritz fired the Uzi and five bullets struck the officer's car. Two hit Dennis, one hitting him in the chest "'and the other grazing his belt buckle. "'Dennis was wearing a bulletproof vest that day, "'which saved his life. "'His wife always insisted he wear it, "'and now he was very grateful he'd complied. "'The impact of the bullets shredded his shoulder and chest "'and caused him agonizing pain, but he was alive.' Fritz continued to fire wildly, with some officers now returning gunfire. There was traffic and people going about their day in nearby businesses. People ducked and ran for cover at the sound of machine gun fire. A woman pumping gas had her windshield shattered by a bullet. Another person mowing the lawn on the Guilford College campus dove off her mower when she heard the shooting. A detective was hit by a bullet under his arm. Fritz somehow managed to escape, pulling onto New Garden Road. He was driving at a normal speed, not rushed, but he had a lead on the officers. As he reached a fork in the road, he swung around, crossing both lanes and stopped behind a curve. When the officers' cars rounded the curve, he opened fire. They all skidded to a stop and started bailing out of their cars, some returning fire. He then drove away. Officers now stayed well behind Fritz's car, unable to predict what he'd do next. They were also aware that Susie and her two young children were passengers in the car. Highway Patrol officers were also alerted to be on the lookout as the blazer was headed towards Highway 220. Unmarked cars were positioned at the intersection of 220 and Highway 150. Just south of 150, Sheriff's Deputy David Thacker saw the blazer approaching. He pulled into a grocery store parking lot as Fritz passed. He saw Fritz turn and smile at him. He turned on his lights and sirens and followed the vehicle. Two other patrol cars also arrived from various points to follow as well. Fritz slowed down again to fire on the officers. Orders were given for patrol cars to stay well behind the blazer as it continued down 150. The blazer began to slow as scores of patrol cars followed at a distance, bearing lights and sirens. As the blazer approached Bronco Lane, its brake lights came on. The officers closest behind slammed on the brakes, some swerving to the side of the road, anticipating another round of bullets from Fritz Azuzzi. Officers began piling out of their cars, planning to take cover behind their vehicles to draw the weapons towards the blazer. But before they had time to do so, a flame could be seen ignited from beneath the blazer. There was the sound of two shots, and then an ear-splitting boom. Then The explosion. It was so powerful, it lifted the entire body of the blazer off the ground as high as the telephone poles before slamming back to the ground. It was 3.07 p.m., June 3, 1985, and many area residents would remember forever exactly where they were at that precise moment. Police dispatchers got a breathless call. He just blew the whole thing up. Get an ambulance out here. A hundred feet from the explosion, Fritz Klenner was found lying face down in a ditch. He was still breathing. Officer Dan Davidson bent over him, hoping to get a deathbed confession. His breathing was slowing and he could be heard gurgling. Then all sounds stopped. Fritz Klenner was dead, drowned in his own blood. On the other side of the road was the body of Susie Newsom Lynch. The only things left intact were her head and torso. The bottom half of her body was shredded. She had been sitting on the bomb when it went off. It had been placed under the passenger seat. In the wreckage of the blazer, the bodies of Jim and John Lynch were found still sitting in the back seat. Later, it would be determined that they had died before the explosion. Autopsies would reveal that they had been poisoned with cyanide and had also been shot in the head. They were shot at close range and were dead before the explosion happened. The trajectory of the bullets possibly pointed to Susie as being the shooter, but experts were uncertain. Gunshot residue tests on her hands were determined to be inconclusive because of the bomb residue from the explosion, as well as the fact that rain had washed away any other evidence. Within minutes of the explosion, a fierce storm rolled in without warning, turning the sky black. Marble-sized hail rained down and the officers and emergency workers ran for cover. Lightning struck, lighting up the woods 200 yards away, and the wind blew fiercely. It was like the Lord was mad, Officer Davidson would later say. Like he was real mad. Fritz and Susie seemed to be preparing for the apocalypse, or at least World War III. In the car, in addition to the Uzi... Other weapons were found, including a 9mm pistol, two more shotguns, a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, an assault rifle with a bipod and a flare gun, and scores of ammunition. Also found were gas masks, tarps, tools, sea rations, boots, ropes, several knives of various types, martial arts weapons, holsters, bandoliers, smoke grenades, waterproof matches, a portable water treatment unit, and a survival guide. A plastic sandwich bag filled with stacks of $100 bills was also found concealed in a pack. The bomb squad was called in to clear Susie's apartment. Inside, they found dozens of guns, including an M6 combination rifle shotgun and an assault rifle. There was survivalist literature, combat knives, a police scanner, vitamins and stimulants by the bag full, and camouflage clothing. The boys had recently been seen wearing this type of clothing, as well as military-style boots. There was a target pinned to the inside of the children's bedroom door that had been used for target practice. Small-caliber bullet holes were found piercing the paper and into the door. They also found stashes of cash, gold, and jewelry. At the home of Fritz's mother was found six shotguns, a machine gun, seven pistols, five semi-automatic weapons, one and a half cases of dynamite, 28 pounds of gunpowder, 35 smoke and tear gas grenades, and two live remote-controlled mines. Dr. Fred Klenner's former office was also searched. There were so many vitamins and other medications stored there that it took three dump trucks to haul it all away for disposal. Detective Davidson would later make a case for Susie Lynch's participation in the murders of Dolores and Janie Lynch, or, at the very least, being in the area when it occurred. It was believed that Fritz carried out the Newsom murders alone, If so, she did not participate in the actual killing of her own parents. However, it is almost certainly true that she was complicit in their murders, so they couldn't testify in Tom's favor at the custody hearing. Her grandmother was not believed to be a target, but because she was there, became a victim as well. Family and friends remarked that Susie didn't shed any tears at the funeral of her parents, but spoke warmly of her grandmother, Hattie. Susie's family was left to try and make sense of the whole tragedy. At first, some tried to defend her by saying she had recently exhibited strange behavior and was seeing a psychiatrist. Others pointed to Fritz as the villain and Susie as a victim, but most didn't buy into this. Susie had access to a number of weapons in the vehicle that day and knew how to use them. Wouldn't she have tried to defend herself and her children once she saw that Fritz was out of control, even shooting at police officers? And how could have Fritz been driving the vehicle, shooting at officers, and forcing the boys to take cyanide pills at the same time? Most tellingly, a friend of Susie's reported that Susie had once told them that she couldn't live without Fritz. She carried cyanide, she said, and if anything ever happened to Fritz, she and the boys would take it. Ian Perkins, once the gullible friend of Fritz Klenner, turned informant, served four months in prison for being an accessory after the fact to the Newsom murders. He is now over 50 years old, married, and the father of two. He graduated from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, earning a degree in philosophy, and then joined the National Guard. He now works in the tech industry and still lives in North Carolina. He has only spoken to the media about his part in the Klenner case twice in 30 years. He said it's not an easy thing to live with the fact that I helped Fritz kill three people. It seems like a lifetime ago but the universe gave me a chance and I've done my best to be worthy of that chance. Officer Tommy Dennis made a full recovery after being shot by Fritz Klenner and saved by his bulletproof vest. He had frequent nightmares for a few months afterwards. He quit the police force soon after being shot at his family's insistence. He stayed in protective services and supervises security at the county courthouse. He is a father and grandfather today. He still has the scars, physically and emotionally, from that June day in 1985. He can still recall Fritz Klenner's smile as he pointed the Uzi at him and opened fire. Tom Lynch is now retired. He is currently married to his third wife, Kelly, and has a 13-year-old daughter. He is content with his present-day life, although he is still bitter about how events unfolded. He continues to question the SBI's actions to allow Susie and Fritz to drive off with his sons and to their deaths. Why wasn't Fritz arrested earlier, he asks. He says he'd warned several law enforcement agencies that Fritz was dangerous, but he was never taken seriously. He's grateful for a second chance to have a family, but will never stop grieving his two boys, and he will never forgive Susie Newsom and pins the blame on her for the lost lives of his sons, his mother, and his sister. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks once again to April in Greensboro, North Carolina, for not only pointing me to the story, but also helping me in clarifying some of the details in this case. Thank you so much, April. Don't forget, you can become a Patreon supporter to get bonus content, including a wrap-up episode for the series Murder in the Family, that will be available soon you'll get extra details about these cases that i didn't cover in the episodes just go to patreon.com slash once upon a crime to become a patron thanks so much once upon a crime is written produced and edited by me esther ludlow until next time be good to one another